Welcome to Mark Lamont Hill. I'm a big fan of his, and uh, he's a host on Al Jazeera, and he's also got a YouTube channel that he's doing a lot of stuff uh, at over now on just Mark Lamont Hill, his name, M-A-R-K. Uh, you guys See. definitely want to check that out. Thank you. Or M-A-R-C. I said, I was trying to say C, but my brain was just like, K. It just overrode me. It's that like was terrible. like when you were like, don't do that thing. And then I, you're like. I did it. Yeah. And I have it right thing. in front of me. I pulled up Mark Lamont Hill with that the C. to me too. I interviewed Naomi Klein uh, maybe like a few months ago. And you know, she has this book doppelganger where she's talking right. about yep, always yep. being called Naomi Wolf. And yes. I swear to God. After reading the book, prepping for the interview, I still said, joining me now is Naomi Wolf. <laughs> she thought I was joking. She thought I was joking, so I kind of like faked it, you know? But I totally screwed it up because I was thinking about I, it too hard. So we interviewed her, too, about the book. And I was so paranoid that I was going to do exactly the same thing. Because you read this whole book about the confusion between the names, and then it just gets implanted in your head. And so I had big at the top of my on my screen like Naomi Klein not Wolf. So. now that we're done now that we're done making excuses for my idiocy let's go ahead and jump into it here so there's a lot of stuff I wanted to, to talk to you about um I guess let's start with this you and Crystal are in a unique club of people who said true and accurate things and were employed in in cable news and there was a big scandal like scandal I guess you can say about I don't know how many years ago it was now but uh you were at the UN and you said from the river to the sea and then that that led to massive backlash from CNN. Uh, reflect on that now, given that, like, you know, we see what's going on in Gaza at the moment and what Israel is doing and how this is, you know, catapulted to the number one issue in the country, in the world. Um, how do you feel about that whole chapter and what went down? You know, I'm, I never was bitter about it, uh, but I certainly was frustrated and hurt about it. And there's some vindication, you know, now that the whole world is talking about this and people are seeing some of the things that I was talking about. You know, when I gave the UN speech in 2018, it wasn't a particularly radical speech. Ironically, I was um, I was in Palestine and I flew back just to do this speech. And so on the plane, I don't usually write speeches, um, but I was like, you know what? I don't want to freestyle this one because I don't want to do anything controversial. I don't want any problems. So mm -hmm. I wrote the speech, right? First and last time. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, it was, I used the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and I juxtaposed that to, you know, what was going on in Israel and Palestine. And I thought it was pretty measured, although I obviously talked about Israeli apartheid. I didn't use the word apartheid in the speech, but I talked about what was going on. I talked about the differential systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, by, and so at the end, when I said, you know, we have to do what justice requires, and that's a free Palestine from the river to the sea. At the end of the speech, I got a standing applause. I got a standing ovation at the UN. You know, the, I heard some whispers that Egypt was mad because I think I said something about what was happening. Uh, you know, Egypt's you know complicity as well a little bit at the Rafah hmm. border. Um, but in general, I thought it went well. So when I got the the note from CNN the next day, it was a little jarring, or the phone call. Um, there, there's an organization called UN Watch, which is like a Zionist kind of watchdog organization that watches these speeches. So I heard, I saw on Twitter, you know, it's given the world's most evil speech and all that stuff. But they say that like every day, so that 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 didn't mean much. It wasn't until I got the you know the call from CNN that things changed a bit, um, and then things just flipped upside down because suddenly people who had never heard the word "river to the sea" before were now acting like it was the most vile thing they'd ever heard. It was like people just went to these websites and these, you know, these talking heads and they took, you know, five seconds of information from Google and Wikipedia and decided that uh, that I had said this awful thing. And I knew that I hadn't. 
Um, I knew both the intent, but also the history of the phrase river to the sea. But none of that mattered back then. No one seemed to care. So when you fast forward now and, and you know, Rashida Tlaib is getting censured in Congress, you know, largely for using that word. And, and, and I mean, the number of people who've been censured in Congress is, in the, is like a handful, maybe five in America. Right. You know, and, and she's one of them. Not not pedophiles, not white supremacists, not active Klan leaders, you know. Um, and that's just like the current Congress. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like there's so many people who could get censured and they won't. And and um, including people who say that there are no Palestinian victims or innocents, you know. And despite that, you know, she is. And so now people are like, wait a minute, what's the big deal? And then when Netanyahu says that we're going to control everything from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, and, you know, other Israeli leaders are echoing this, you know, now suddenly there's a, a big gap between what people thought was going on and, and, what, act, and what they now believe is going on. Um, and so I'm getting a lot of people saying to me, oh, that made sense what you said back then. Oh, they really screwed you over. And as more people get censured, more people get punished, more people get silenced, more people get fired as they have over the last five years uh, and even the last two years, um, I think you, you're seeing a lot more light bulbs go off, but you're also seeing a lot. You, you, people are getting more courageous as there are more people standing next to them. Yeah. Well, in the hypocrisy and the double standard has never been more clear. I mean, we literally just had a Republican congressman, Andy Ogles, kill them all. all say, I think we should kill them all. He was asked about kids, too, by the way, with regard yeah. to Palestinian children. Yep. Literally. Right. I mean, Nazi calling for extermination of Palestinian children and the media barely covered it. No politicians yeah. are getting asked about it whatsoever. Whereas when Rashida is using the phrase from the river to the sea to call for equal rights, as you were, for right. Palestinians and for Israelis, she's, you know, raked across the coals, including by the, you know, most of the Democrats who serve alongside of her, completely thrown under the bus and completely. censured by her colleagues in Congress. It, it is absolutely outrageous. It, it really is. And it, it speaks to the fact that even now, the humanity of Palestinian people isn't legible uh, to large, you know, swaths of uh, the American public. Certainly, in the political world, you know, they they just don't care. I mean, one percent, and now a little bit more than one percent of the child population in Gaza has been killed since October seventh. I mean, there's no place in 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 Europe where that could happen, where we wouldn't be outraged right now. Um, there's if, if it were Israeli children, there's no way we'd be okay with this, right? And we shouldn't be okay with it if, if 1% of Israeli children or any percent of Israeli children were killed. But with Palestinian children, it's, it's, it's as if we have a different measure. Uh, this idea that Hamas is hiding among the people and that Hamas is, you know, embedded so deeply everywhere that anybody could be Hamas and anybody could be a terrorist is part is bound up in a deeper and more dangerous longstanding narrative of Arabs and brown people and Muslims um, as as terrorists and anti-Semites until proven otherwise. And so because that's the logic and that's the language, even when you talk about Palestinian children, childhood is, is, is a space of innocence. Childhood is, is a space of uh, protected status. But because we can't see Palestinian childhood, we can't see Palestinian innocence, uh, it's very easy to turn a blind eye or, 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 a, deaf, or a deaf ear, forget those ableist terms, but it's, it's, it's very easy to ignore uh, when you hear the um, 
that children are dying or that young people are dying or that uh, two mothers every hour are dying or that, you know, two thirds of the Palestinian population who've been killed in Gaza since October 7th have been women and children. It, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it boggles the mind that these numbers aren't sparking more outrage. They're sparking increasing outrage. But again, somebody's saying kill them all, as you pointed out, Crystal, I mean, that, that, that only flies when it's black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, they let the mask slip a little at the beginning of the Ukraine war. when yeah. They're like, I can't believe these blonde haired, blue eyed people are getting killed. Yes. Like, well, we should be outraged about that. But why is it making a difference to you right now that they're blonde haired, blue eyed Europeans and somehow that hits different? And of course, we know the truth of that. Um, do you still do you still use the phrase from the river to the sea? Because I know at the time you were pressured into making a, a sort of apology. I think you published an op-ed about it, um, saying that you were deeply sorry for uh, words that clearly caused confusion, anger, fear, and other forms of harm. So, do you still use from the river to the sea? How do you feel about that phrase now? It's an interesting. That's a great question. Oh, that's a really great question. You should be on cable news. Um, <laughs> She's too good for that. She's too good for that. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, so the first thing I'd say is, you know, the apology, you know, sort of like a dude apology. Like, I'm sorry if you were upset. <laughs> it does read a little like that, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And that, that, that. That was sort of the intent because I, I, I wasn't apologizing for the phrase because the phrase is not anti-Semitic, and I wasn't trying to compromise the moral high ground by acting as if. Um, you know, the use of the phrase somehow cheapened my argument or undermined um, the spirit of it. Um, if I could do it again, I probably wouldn't even give the apology um, because I don't believe that the bulk of the people expressing outrage were operating in good faith. Yeah. You know, if, if I say a term and it hurts you, it, it almost doesn't matter whether or not my my intent becomes less important if I know I've done harm. And so what I spoke out at that moment is what my point was like, look, I gave a speech at the UN and the only thing we're talking about are these last eight words that defeats the purpose of the speech. Um, with some time and distance though, I feel like, you know, they would have found a different eight words, you know, they would, they would have just yeah, found something else. That's right. So, they say free so, Palestine is anti-Semitic now, Mark. I've seen, right. I've, yeah. I saw an article the other day where they say, oh, anti-Semitic graffiti put on this bridge or whatever. And then you click into it and it says free Palestine and end U.S. support for genocide. And they called that anti-Semitic. Or calling, uh, describing someone's political ideology as a Zionist is now yeah. apparently anti-Semitic, which... That one's a little puzzling. <laughs> I'm, I'm stunned by it, but but it happens all the time. And, and you're right. So so I, I think I would I, I would I would not give people in the political realm um, as as much I would I wouldn't be as generous in my interpretation of their behavior. But my point was also more for the people who follow those political leaders and who listen to those voices who are now convinced that I said something anti-Semitic and therefore. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't hear me. They couldn't hear the argument I was making because they they thought that I was calling for Juden Ryan, um, which was not at all what I was doing. And so, you know, that's why I kind of made the apology. Um, and honestly, I didn't use the word river to the sea for a very long time. And I, and I generally still don't use it just because it becomes a distraction. But I absolutely defend people's right to say it. I think I don't think it's an anti-Semitic phrase. I think it was absurd that Rashida Tlaib was 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 censured for that. That other people are as well. That I, I mean, so much of the the uh, the spectacle 
uh, that happened with the presidents of MIT, uh, Harvard, and Princeton, that was the subtext, right? Is that people are calling for genocide, which what they meant was that people were saying free Palestine from the river to the sea. And, and so I was very clear in saying, no, there's nothing wrong with that. People have a right to say that. And the fact that the Likud party not only uh, had it in its platform uh, in 1977, but continues to say that they want to control everything from the river to the sea, um, suggests that it's far more of a complex, nuanced phrase, and certainly not the exclusive target of Hamas, uh, nor of Palestinians more broadly. Um, and frankly, when I hear river to the sea, and it is genocidal, it's typically coming from Zionists. Yeah. So so let me ask you, because when I hear that in, in the context of the U.S. or in the context of somebody like Rashida Tlaib saying from the river to the sea, what I hear mm. is a call for liberation and freedom and independence and sovereignty and a one state democratic solution in the region with equal rights for all. And I think that's usually when you hear activists say from the river to the sea, that's more or less what they're referring to. I'll concede that if you take some Hamas militant hardliner who says from the river to the sea, they mean like, no, we want all of this and we do want to kick everybody else out of the region. But I think the context is the most important thing. And what annoys yeah. me is when people pretend like, no, there is no different context there. And the words mean the same thing. And it's genocidal in both instances. Is that your perception as well? When you hear an activist or when you hear Rashida Tlaib or when you hear any of a number of people who are well-meaning say from the river to the sea? Yeah, I mean, I think some people are one-staters. I think you're right about that. And they mean literally a single liberated Palestine from the river to the sea that is inclusive of everyone, a single democratic secular state, one person, one voter, or, or, or a single binational state. But either way, everybody stays. Uh, and, and, and that's one vision of river to the sea. Other people like myself, and I happen to be a one-stater one at, at a certain philosophical level, but ultimately, I believe that's up to the people who live there. Yeah. And so for me, you know, Liberation, freedom, justice could look multiple ways, but it has to be everywhere. Part of the problem, so when I say river to the sea, I'm simply saying in all the areas in historic Palestine, we need liberation. And the reason why it's important to stress that is because oftentimes when you talk about apartheid, people say, well, 1.6 million Arabs can vote and they, we have there are Arabs on the Knesset and there are Arabs who can do this. And you notice they don't say Palestinian. They say these Arabs can do this and that. And so they're only talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel. And so they'll point to the uh, the, the relative uh, equality of Arabs and pa or Palestinians inside of Israel as evidence that there's no apartheid. And of course, we know that that's not the case either, that there's all kinds of laws and rules and mechanisms uh, that give priority status, heightened status, and enhanced rights or, or just protected rights to, to Jewish citizens as opposed to people with other nationalities. Um, it, within the within the state, like Druze, like Arabs, uh, etc. But we're saying, well, no, Israel has effective control over Gaza. It has, it, it, it always has. It didn't get rid of the troops. It redeployed the troops to the border. And and there's been a long-standing military occupation since 1967. So there is effective, there is effectively a one-state reality where Israel controls everything. And so the liberation can't just be to people who have Israeli passports. What about the people who have a Hawiya? What about the people who live in Ramallah or, Beth or Bethlehem? What about the people, you know, who live in East Jerusalem? You know, they also have uh, rights and, and freedoms that we need to honor and that we need to enhance. And then, of course, there's the question of Gaza. And so, so for some people, River to the Sea doesn't necessarily mean a one-state solution. It simply means that whatever 
freedom talk we engage in, whatever liberation conversation we're having, it can't just be about people with Israeli passports, or it can't just be people in Gaza, or it can't just be people in the West Bank, or it can't exclude people around the diaspora who also want the right of return. And so I, I think that's right. And I, and I think you're also right to point out the fact that, uh, you know, of course there are outliers. Of course there are people who, when they say river to the sea, um, you know, what they mean is something different. Um, but that isn't the dominant conversation. Even if it, even, even people who we may not agree ethically or morally with. And let me be clear, most people I know, when they say River to the Sea, they just want justice and equality for everybody. They want a single one state democratic reality. I think that's true. But I think there are other people who, even if they don't want that fundamentally, they accept that that's the reality. They don't think all of Israel, despite what Bill Maher's ridiculous monologue suggests, they don't mm -hmm. think that everyone's gonna pick up and leave, that there's gonna be a bunch of U-Haul trucks in, 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 in historic Palestine and all the Jewish people are gonna leave. No one expects that. The question, though, is what does freedom look like? What does justice look like? And is it possible to have a freedom and a liberation project that doesn't diminish some of the things that Jewish citizens can do right now? The answer is no. But that's okay. The, 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 you, you can't have a... You, if you are in a position of power and privilege, to create equality is going to make you lose some power and privilege. You shouldn't lose all of your or any of your freedom, you shouldn't be unliberated, you shouldn't be oppressed. But yeah, some things are going to change. Like maybe the national language won't just be one language, right? Maybe the signs will continue to be in multiple languages, right? Maybe uh, self-determination is a national right, not just of the Jewish people, but of everybody. These aren't diminished rights for you. These are These are just forms of equality and justice that we have to look to. Yeah. And I don't think you could argue that the status quo is really serving um, Jewish Israelis either. Um, you know, and and certainly the quote unquote hunt for Hamas that, of course, is not what's really going on in their assault on Gaza is just further going to, you know, create conditions of radicalization that, you know, imperils Israeli security as well. So it's incredibly it's it actually Agreed. isn't a loss to have peace and justice and equality for everyone from the river to the sea. Um, you recently had a very interesting debate with um, Destiny, who's, you know, sort of favorite. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sort of interesting. A That's a great word. Interesting famous, is a great word. Yeah, famous YouTube debate bro. Um, what did you think about that? Were some, what were some of the moments that stood out for you? What did you think were the, the strongest? Because it's not just Destiny that you've debated. You do a lot of these debates and are very effective at it as well, part of why we wanted to talk to you. What do you find are some of the consistent points that are made? And what do you find are some of the most challenging points for you to grapple with? I think that the two things, it, it, particularly I'm thinking about the destiny conversation. I mean, one is international law can be vague. Um, international law uh, is a long-standing intellectual and legal and political structure that at times is intentionally vague, that at times gives people outs, uh, even when they don't operate within our general, generally accepted principles. I'll give you an example. We were debating about UN Resolution 242. Um, and one of the things that UN Resolution 242 talks about, along with Resolution 338, which both happened at the end of the 1967 war, is that it calls for the end, the 338 calls for the end of belligerency, and it's like, okay, we're gonna stop all the, the fighting. And, and 242 effectively is to honor the territorial integrity of Israel. Um, 
And it also says that Israel will withdraw from uh, the territories, from, ter from territories occupied, from territories previously occupied. So to me, to any reasonable person, I, you know, 242 means that Israel will get out of the West Bank. Israel will get out of East Jerusalem. Israel will get out of the Golan. Israel will get out of the Sinai. Israel will get out of Gaza. That seems like common sense. And when I say that to Destiny, he says, well, it doesn't say they'll get out of, they'll withdraw from all territory occupied. It just says mm -hmm. that they'll, Israel will withdraw from territory previously mm -hmm. occupied. I mean, I think he's wrong. I think that undermines the spirit of the law. And the, the whole point here was to honor the territorial integrity of Israel, but Israel needs to have established boundaries, established borders, which it still doesn't have declared borders. So I think I'm right. And I think the international community agrees with me. But international law always, or law in general, it's not just international law, there's always a room, there's always room to argue. And if you know a lawyer, <laughs> you know that, you know, they'll argue. Oh, yeah. Um, and they'll debate. And that's the job, right? To, to you know, to, to produce doubt or to provide intellectual openings or holes. And so when I'm debating people about international law, they can always kind of quibble over, um, over um, over those kinds of things. And, I, and now I'm speaking specifically to good faith arguments. The problem is that those good faith arguments, where I think they're just wrong, and sometimes they're not good faith, are, are mixed in with a lot of terrible bad faith arguments where people just barrage you. And I'm not speaking to Destiny in particular. Actually, I'm not speaking about Destiny in this case. I think Destiny was sincere. I just think he was wrong on a lot of things. But I, there are a lot of people for example, Alan Dershowitz, who you'll debate, or or uh, I just Rabbi Shmuley. Rabbi Shmuley, thank you, Rabbi Shmuley. I watched the Rabbi Shmuley debate with um, Finkelstein with, with Finkelstein the other day, and it was one of the most pejorative and grotesque. Uh, it was so bad, even Pierce Morgan had to go on Twitter afterward. Yep. Yeah, you were real. You were real. You were on a line. <laughs> you know, right. Mark. We actually, uh, I pulled a portion of that debate for you to react to. So Control Room, if you guys could go ahead and play a bit of the finkelstein Schmuley debate with Paris Morgan, and we'll get Mark's reaction on the other side. Norman Finkelstein gave a, I thought, a pretty measured uh, argument in response to my first question. You've gone ad hominem immediately and attacked the man, not the issue, and not the question that I asked you, which is to respond to what he was saying, which is a growing feeling around the world, by the way, that Israel is now committing, as he put it, uh, as the courts said, a plausible genocide. I don't happen to think it is genocide they're doing. But what I do think is happening is that there is a, a, a shameful number of innocent women and children being slaughtered on a daily basis, and I don't see what the end game is other than the obliteration of most of Gaza and many people living there. So to answer that so, point. So let me so let me so let me let me answer your question directly. First of all, when you quote President Lula of Brazil, he is a criminal who served in jail for corruption. He has zero credibility. He also knows nothing about history. 10,000 Jews were gassed a day for four years after the Vanzi Conference in January 1942. To compare that to Gaza is an abomination. Secondly, Norman Finkelstein is a liar. The International Court of Justice specifically said that Israel is not committing a genocide. So when you tell me why do I go after ad hominem, I'm a I'm questioning his academic credentials. He just lied on international TV. S South Africa sued to get the ICJ to declare that Israel's committing a genocide, and they said they're not committing a genocide, and they said they would not stop the Israeli offensive. That is a straight-out 
lying okay, well, fabrication. Okay, well, all right. Number, if you're going to call... Wait, 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 oh, no, hang three, on. No, no, if you're going to call him a liar, amongst other things you've called him, I'm going to go back to normal Finkelstein and get him to respond to that. Would you like me to respond now? Yes, please, yeah. I think it's only reasonable you should, yeah. Well, I'm not sure what was the purpose to inviting either me or Mr. Shmuley to this program, because obviously uh, we are in two entirely different wavelengths. Mr. Shmuley is in the business, which is not surprising, of character assassination. He's in the, ca- he's in the business of libel. That's his job, because where he has to confront the facts, he would be in a very difficult situation. So there you go, Mark. And it's incredible. I mean, Pierce opens up by being like, you're just doing a bunch of ad hominem attacks. And Shmuley is like, here's some more lies and ad hominem (laughs) attacks for you (laughs) on top of the previous ones. Yes, it was was remarkable. It's to the point that he doesn't even realize that he's doing it, right? It's just all he's got. It's all he's got. And so, I mean, there's a way that you could say that if, that if, if if person X makes a claim and, and person X is the sole source of evidence for that claim and person X c- can be uh, proven a liar, then we can dismiss their claims, right? That's fine, right? But that's not what Shmuley's doing. He's saying, okay, well, Lula said X and Lula's a liar, so we don't have to account for what he's stating, even if it has been substantiated by a million other people. Um, and it's fascinating. Suddenly, I, 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 a criminal conviction is, I mean, Itamar Ben-Gavir, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, th- there's no shortage of crimin- either alleged or convicted criminality throughout the, the Israeli uh, uh, prime ministry, the, the cabinet, the Knesset, all of it. But that aside, he just continued to, to just beat up on Norm Finkelstein. He brought up his parents. Uh, he basically implied that Finkelstein was a Holocaust denier. Oh, he didn't imply uh, it. He said it oh, outright. No, he, actually, he said he was a Holocaust denier. Yeah. And Finkelstein has very clearly and unequivocally said that he doesn't deny the Holocaust, as if that needs to be said. Um, his, he lost m- must have m- much of his family in mm-hmm. the Holocaust. His parents are his Holocaust family, the survivors. Yes. He's a, he a scholar of the Holocaust. So to yes. call him a Holocaust denier is absolutely insane. It's complete bad faith. But again, it's this sleight of hand where where there's somebody who's a historian who might be a who might be a a, a Holocaust denier. And Finkelstein may say, OK, well, this person is wrong on this issue of Holocaust denier, but they're otherwise a solid historian and they have a right to make their claims, even if I disagree with them. And the wrongness of their claim will be will be spotlighted if we don't close the conversation to open it up. It's actually quite very much a right wing argument in certain ways. And he and by that somehow that makes him the, the Holocaust denier. It's 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 so immature and ridiculous. Uh, it's like he who smelt it dealt. He's basically saying if you, you said the word Holocaust <laughs> denier, so therefore you must be one. And it's like this is dumb. Um, but beyond that, he also does something. He does the very thing that he accuses Finkelstein of doing. He's lying on international television. Somehow this narrative, and he's not the first person to say this. The narrative has become that. The ICJ, the International Court of Justice, said that Israel was not committing genocide. That is not what the International Court of Justice said. And Finkelstein pushed back. I I only wish that Norman had, I mean, Finkelstein moves at a certain pace and he's going to move at that pace no matter what. Yeah. 
and he's going to be very disciplined and poised and establish his arguments. It's I respect it and I admire it. Um, in that moment, I wish Shmuley would have just been told, where did the court say that? Where in the determination, where in the decision did they say that? What they said was that it was plausible that genocide was happening. The, pur the purpose of that hearing, as you all know, was to decide upon emergency measures. And what the court decided was, they, it's true, they didn't, they could have gone further and, and called for a full ceasefire. And there are multiple reasons why they may have not. One of which might be that because uh, of Hamas's standing with the court, which is different than Israel's, they felt like they, it, from a juridical perspective, they might be calling, telling uh, Israel to cease all 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 military activity, but didn't have the power to tell Hamas that, which could put create a, an imbalance in terms of the realities on the ground. Now we know Israel wasn't going to listen either way, but that might be the court's decision. But that's one potential reason. But what we know for sure is no no speculation, no hypotheticals needed. The court did not say Israel is not committing genocide. They said that it was plausible that they were. They, they 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 read statements from the Israeli leadership, various forms of leadership, talking about the incitement to genocide and the very things they told them to do uh, to prevent genocide were the things that are listed in uh, all international law that meet the textbook definition of genocide. It would be as if I if I were if if I were to say, Crystal, uh, you know, you're in court. Uh, you're accused of bank robbery. Here's your prelim hearing. I'm not saying you're convicted of bank robbery. I'm just saying I can't dismiss the case because it's plausible that you did because we have a mask and we have videotape. And here's you with the with the with the bank robbery, uh, you with the, with the spoils of the bank robbery on the table. Now I'm not saying you committed. I can't say you did it because you deserve a full investigation. But what I'm going to say is, in the meantime, Crystal, don't go to any banks. Don't wear mm -hmm. any ski masks. Don't go up to the teller. Don't ask for any money. Right. Effectively, I'm saying stop robbing banks till you get your hearing. And that's what we just saw at the International Court of Justice. And then magically, not to change the subject, but magically, on that very day, the UN gets accused of being part of a criminal conspiracy, effectively, by having 12 employees who, who, who helped do, uh, through UNRWA, uh, the October 7th attack. So Israel, not only, the Israeli husband was strong that day. They, they, they redirected the conversation on the one hand, but they also had a bunch of mouthpieces, including people like Rabbi Shmuley, respectfully, uh, who started to say this bizarre narrative, spin this bizarre narrative, that Israel had been absolved of the crime of genocide. When in fact they're asked to give monthly book reports on how they're going to stop doing genocide, and and Channel Four came out by the way and did an investigation and said there's yes. absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the UNRWA had Hamas members in it, and they the UNRWA fired the people who were suspected of maybe being involved immediately without an investigation, just yep. to basically say do not cut off our funds. This is absolutely necessary for humanitarian assistance on the ground. And then the U.S. and Israel and all these different countries cut off the funding anyway because, like you said, the point was to change the conversation distract and say, hey, don't look over here where they just said it's plausible that we committed genocide. So to the uh, Rabbi Shmuley thing, I went to the comment section of mm -hmm. that video. Yeah. And yeah. thankfully, the comment section w was onto it. And I'm not, you know, I don't think Piers Morgan's audience is necessarily the same as ours or yours, Mark. I think it's a very <laughs> yeah. different audience. But even they were like, this guy's insufferable. This guy's a smear merchant. They were um, praising Norm Finkelstein because, you know, early on, I watched a little bit of this earlier, early yeah. on in it, he's, he's just like an encyclopedia of knowledge of what happened in the case. Norm is like, yeah. well, 15 of the 17 judges said it is plausible that they are committing a genocide. He's just like stating information. Right. And then you have Shmuley who's like, 
you're an anti-Semite and you're a Holocaust denier and you're this and you're that. And the audience was not buying it at all. But Even to go attacking back- his scholarly credentials. I mean, he says, I, 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 I challenge his credibility as Norman Finkelstein has a PhD in political science from Princeton. Again, I'm not, we don't be elitist or classes about this, but if we're saying he ain't got the chops, you got to base it on something. He publishes on university presses, uh, many of his books. He's been, you know, he's been, he's been cited widely. He's got the PhD. He's a leading political historian of, of Gaza. I mean, there's no credible reason. Then it was like, well, he didn't get tenure. What? He didn't get tenure because of Alan Dershowitz. Right. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. yeah. You only have to listen <clears throat> to him to know yeah. that whether you agree with him or not, the man knows his stuff. And I mean, he's dedicated his entire adult life to reading every, I mean, at times when most of the world wasn't paying attention and most of the world didn't care and he had right. all but given up on pushing forward with the Palestinian cause. He was there reading the UN reports and reading the human rights reports and committing that to memory and writing these scholarly books. So, you know, I mean, he, that claim, that attack on his credentials was disproven right there in the interview, to your point, Kyle, about the encyclopedic knowledge. Yeah. So, but let me, I wanted to go back to the Destiny thing for a second, because I watched the whole thing. I think you did a phenomenal job. It's amazing. He seemed to me, I don't know how familiar you are with his work, but he seemed Never, I to- I heard of him until that day. Okay. Well, he huh. seemed to respect you and engaged like well with you and- I don't know if you realize how rare that is because he, he <laughs> hates is he like more combative. I, I really, I've literally never he, seen him before. Or yes. After. I think he's normally more combative. He feels like most of the people he talks to are evasive on the specifics of the stuff he brings up. And so he'll get more combative. And then after the interview or debate, he'll usually be like, you know, this person's a hack. This person's this, this person's that you are, especially on this particular topic, you are the only person who I've seen go back and forth with him where afterwards he was like, yeah, you know, if you agree with him or not, you, you know, it was fair. And he was like, he seemed genuinely happy to be engaging on the specifics with you. Mm. I think, I think getting into the weeds of this becomes more important as we, as we go from October 7th to, you know, February 7th, soon to be March 7th, unfortunately. Um, it's not enough to just have these big picture talking points. Now we have to get into the weeds and study this issue. We can't be a headline nation. You know, we can't be a Twitter you know, a, a Twitter nation or X nation, we have to actually wrestle with these ideas because the devil is in the details. And so much of uh, what has happened uh, has been fueled by misinformation, disinformation, uh, and a lack of information. And so one example that I can think of off, from my, off the top of my head, and I don't remember the interview well, but uh, we were debating about sort of how Arabs have basically been like recalcitrant, right? He says, uh, you know, the, the the Khartoum conference in Sudan in 1967, that there were the, you know, the Arabs famously uttered the three no's, right? No peace, no negotiation, and no um, no recognition. And uh, that's a famous Alan Dershowitz talking point. It's a, it's a very popular Zionist talking point to effectively say, whenever we try to make peace, people don't make peace. And, and it's like, well, that's a great talking point. But if you actually study the Khartoum conference, if you actually read the details of it, they weren't saying no peace, they were saying no formal peace treaty. They weren't saying no recognition, they were saying no de jure recognition. And they weren't saying no negotiations, they were saying no direct negotiations, they wanted a mediator. But if you walk out of it with just that quick talking point, then it makes it easy to say Arabs don't deserve diplomacy because they'll never take any, right? So that's a moment where Destiny had done, he'd, he'd read the, the talking point and he'd heard about it, but just another layer of study 
reveals something far more complicated. And that's what we have to do. And I find that if you engage people at the level of, of nuance and depth, rather than just arguing ideology back and forth, because at the end of the day, I may not convince you if you're a Zionist of, of a different ideology, right? But I can at least, but I can show you that, that that thing you said in history isn't true. And if we can do that, if we can pull out the white papers, if we can pull out, you know, um, the, 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 the investigations of the British from throughout the 20th century, that mm -hmm. stuff's not a small thing because it proves a overarching point, which is that Palestinian resistance has not been because they hate Jews. Palestinian resistance has been they hate dispossession. They hate they hate land theft. They hate ethnic cleansing. And he was I think he was excited to be able to actually talk about the stuff that he read with depth and nuance. Um, and I, I appreciate that. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. You know, I, I, I because, again, he's operating in good faith, I think, even if I think he's wrong. But, you know, some of these debates you see, and I have a few on my YouTube channel, and there are others that other people engage in all the time where people aren't operating in good faith. Whether they've read the stuff or not, doesn't matter because they're ultimately going to spin a very particular narrative, which is simply untrue. Even in like the early 2000s, when we were close to some sort of negotiated settlement, I think there yeah. were many officials who are leaders on the Israeli side who said effectively we're giving the Palestinians less than a state. Mm -hmm. even assuming everything went through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you also yeah. have Norm Finkelstein brings up this point. I think it's a phenomenal point. Every year, every other year at the UN, they have a direct vote on a peaceful settlement to the Palestine question. And every year, like every country except the United States and Israel and maybe a handful of others says, yeah, let's do, you know, a, a two state solution along the 1967 border. So this idea that you have Palestinians or Arabs more generally who in no way, shape or form are interested in peace. I actually think a relatively simple cursory reading of the history kind of dispels that notion very quickly. Don't you agree with that? I agree wholeheartedly, you know, but again, you need at least a cursory reading of history as opposed to a cursory reading of, you know, of APAC talking points, which is, mm. you know, Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, which is, you know, from from the Peel Commission report or the Peel, the Peel partition, excuse me, uh, of the 1930s to the UN partition plan to the Clinton Accords or even before that, the the, the Oslo Accords or, or or the Camp David Accords. You know, they'll say every time. Israel made a fair offer and Palestinians either got up from the table or didn't take it when they've never pointed out that one, it's never been a fair offer. It's never been demographically uh, fair or just. And it's also never been a single contiguous uh, piece of land that's been offered. You can't offer people 138 ghettos that are uh, separate. They're Bantustans effectively and say, well, we gave you a state. You can say, oh, we gave him Jerusalem. Well, you gave him the Jerusalem governorate, but like, did you, what about East Jerusalem? What about uh, what about the old city of East Jerusalem? What about where the holy lands are or the holy uh, monuments are, whether it's Church of Sepulcher or Al-Aqsa Compound or Haram al-Sharif or, or, or whether it's the Western Wall? You know, these, these things have never, are never as simple as they're portrayed to be. It's never been that they said, okay, here's Jerusalem. Here's the West Bank. Here's, or East Jerusalem. Here's the West Bank. Here's Gaza. Here's the Golan. Here's the Sinai. Here's contiguous land. Here's potable water. Here is uh, a secure a secure border with your military, not Israeli military. Uh, here you go. No, every vision, even, even the most uh, generous uh, and ambitious uh, negotiations from Israelis have always had Palestinians and Bantustans, have had them separate and have had them uh, under the thumb of, of Israeli security. I mean, even in Gaza, which is supposed to be the case par excellence of Israeli generosity and Palestinian uh, bar barbarism is what? That, that, that we left 
the, the, the greenhouses. We, 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 we relocated all the Israeli settlers and we gave them uh, Gaza and they could have chosen paradise and instead they chose Hamas. We hear that as an APAC talking point. Interestingly enough, also a Hillary Clinton speech bite from when she ran for mm-hmm. president. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both cases, it's untrue. Again, Israel continues to, to determine the future of Gaza. Palestinians have never had a moment of self-determination. And if you say Gaza was the chance that it's Palestinian self-rule, where's the airport? Right? I mean, what country has an, doesn't have an airport? And, it, and that just doesn't have one, isn't permitted to have one. What country has someone else control the population registry or the aeromagnetic sphere or the, you know, or, or has other countries bordered by land, air, and sea? Well, they'll say, oh, well, Edit's crossing is for us. I mean, it's our country. You know, they can go through Rafah and Egypt controls it, but that's also not true. Because if I'm a Palestinian in Gaza and I want to leave or, or more importantly, enter Gaza through the Rafah border, that, that security, which is done by Egypt ostensibly, is coordinated with who? Israel, which has nothing to do with the Rafah border. So again, it's not true, and it's never been true. Well, and I think particularly challenging to those narratives right now isn't just the um, uh, the illumination around the historical record, but the current statements and actions coming out of this government. I mean, how are you going to say, oh, Israelis have always wanted peace when Netanyahu is insistent day after day? I blocked the state. I blocked the state. Mm-hmm. You're right. I, for decades, have been the primary opponent to a two-state solution. Now, that's not really fair because uh, he's trying to take credit for what many had a hand in. <laughs> right. um, but they just, in the Knesset, overwhelmingly passed a resolution against recognition of a Palestinian state. Um, And then, of course, you know, you add that to the daily scenes of horror that are coming out. And it's part of why I think that right now people are like this has awakened something in many people who are just horrified by what they see day in and day out. They can't believe how complicit our country is. They can't believe the way that Joe Biden day after day, week after week, month after month continues with unconditional support, diplomatic cover, shipping and expediting the weapons all while, you know, leaking a little bit of hand wringing to some uh, favored reporters behind the scenes. And so there is a moment right now where people are trying to understand what the hell's going on. I think it's why these engagements are actually important right now, because for the first time in a while, People are actually listening and they want to know and they're open to the idea that perhaps what they had been fed on this conflict is not true. I do want to ask you, though, you know, the Rabbi Shmuley (laughs) realm or genre of Zionist debaters. Do you think that there's anything that's gained from engaging with those type of folks? I mean, Finkelstein, we play in that clip. He's like, I don't know why we're doing this, basically. Do you feel the same or do you feel like even with that, there's something learned? Because as Kyle was pointing out, the comment section kind of saw through the whole shtick that he was trying to throw. I, I, I'm an educator um, first. Uh, in addition to my YouTube channel, um, I'm a professor. I'm a professor at a CUNY Graduate Center now. Um, before that, I was at Temple and other places. And uh, I don't ever think about political debates, whether it's traditional cable news, like when I would debate Bill O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. Or or on YouTube as being about my interlocutor. Never in the history of a debate, especially a TV debate, has somebody said, hey, Crystal, you've debated the best of them. You're you're among the best. Kyle, you're brilliant. You debate people. I'm sure between you two brilliant people in all of your career, you've never had somebody go in the middle of a televised debate. Oh shit, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> you win. Right. It, it just doesn't happen, right? It's never for the other person. That's the performance. For me, it's about 
modeling something for the people watching it. Mm. And so when I debate destiny, it's so that other people have a language to think about how to talk about international law. And so people have a framework for responding to these uh, frequent talking points. So when I, I, I debated someone the other day, you know, and when, when they come out with these very, you know, ridiculous and basic talking points, um, you know, oh, it's anti-Semitic. Why did nobody want, uh, why, why was no one resisting the Jordanian, the Jordanian or Egyptian occupation from 1948 to 1967? It's only when Jews occupied that we have a problem. Well. I watched a Norman Finkelstein interview years ago or debate where a student ran, asked him that question. And he was like, why are you asking me this question? You know, Norman, he said, why are you asking me this question? This has nothing to do with my lecture. You've mm -hmm. read nothing on this topic. Mm -hmm. I, I could talk circles around you. You have. Why would you ask this question instead of all the stuff that I presented for the last hour? But after doing that, he then made an argument. He said, he said from 1940 to 1967, the default Arab position was to return the occupied territories to the Palestinian people. It was a lack of recognition of the Israeli state. He said, now, decades later, we do they do, they do recognize Israel. And so we're in a different place. He said, that's a place of progress. From his, you know, that's Norman's perspective. He said, but um, the point is, is that it wasn't that people were okay with Arab or Jordanian, Egyptian, Syrian occupation. It was that they um, is that they had a different disposition around where the land would go and who and who it would return to. We also talked about agreements between the King of Jordan uh, and and the Israeli government. What's my point? My point is, I watched that Norman Finkelstein interview not because I thought he would convince that college student who thought he had hit Norman Finkelstein with a gotcha question, <laughs> as if after a gajillion years Norman Finkelstein was going to get stumped by a college sophomore. But when I watched that interview. I now had an answer to a question that I knew in my gut was probably something like that, but I didn't have the information yet. because This was years ago that I saw it. This interview is maybe 20 years old. But by watching that Finkelstein interview, I learned how to think about it. And I also was directed towards sources so that I could do the study so that I wouldn't have to take Norm's word for it, but that I could actually do the reading myself. Mm -hmm. That's what I hope to do with these debates, particularly long-form debates, not the five-minute me and Alan Dershowitz go back and forth in front of Chris Cuomo. That doesn't really get us very far. But although I enjoy those interviews, you know, I'm not dissing the show. I'm just saying, but when I get to do the long form debates, people can watch how I approach an argument. They can they can watch how I respond to a claim. They can see, oh, you're going to throw three ad hominems for every fact. I'm going to duck those three ad hominems and I'm only going to focus on the fact. Sort of like what Norm did with, with Shmuley. He didn't defend his parents' honor, although he wanted to. He didn't point out his Ph.D. and put it on the table. He went back to the fact that the court never said that um, that um, that Israel was not guilty of, um, of 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 genocide, and I think that's also. And the other piece of it, to answer your question, is it not only gives the audience tips and tools and tactics and information, um, but it also exposes the poverty of the Zionist argument. You can fake it for two minutes, but if we start to really talk about this thing. And you say Holocaust, 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 and we say, oh, and we concede as we should. The Nazi Holocaust is one of the worst atrocities in human history. And also point out though that the Zionist movement begins long decades before Hitler rose to power, and that this was not a response to the Holocaust. That changes the audience's disposition because the average person thinks that Israel was formed in response to the Holocaust. So 
if we stretch that out over time, you can't just keep hitting the talking points. You can't just keep hitting uh, easy answers to complex questions. And so all that to say, yes, I think those, those conversations are very valuable, um, but they have to be had on the right terms with the right people. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I feel naive. About it. I feel naive because every single debate I enter, I'm under the absolute delusion that I might be able to change their mind. <laughs> and I'm also operating from the perspective that if they make a really good point, I'll be like, damn, that's a good point. I didn't think of that. But apparently I'm the only one who goes in with no agenda to any sort of debate. <laughs> You're wise. I mean, there's it's something very pure. Yeah, I was gonna say there's a there's a beauty in that. Like when, when my when, when my when my infant like uh, yeah. believe in Santa Claus or something, you know, yeah. there's, there's it is, it's very that. childish. I'm showing up yeah. like, hey guys, let's have but a great principled. exchange of ideas. Like, right. and they're like, but it's, but it's principled. I mean, there's yeah. a way that I do too, right? I still want to convince the person. There's in the in the heat of the moment, I'm still like, but come on, man, read this. See yeah, the, do you see that? It seemed like that. It came across like that watching you and Destiny that you were like, yeah. let me explain this where he might actually be like, you know what? That's a good point. Yeah. But you know what? In to be honest I with am. you, let me give you an example, though. I do think Piers Morgan has been moved over the course of this conflict. Oh, yeah. Not that he's where we are, but from the mm. beginning, yeah, the definitely. stance he was taking to now. Mm -mm. Yeah, for him to be like taking Norm Finkelstein's side in that debate. <laughs> because I do think... You know, the, the thing is, if you cover this conflict every day and you're just evaluating yep. what is actually happening and the reality and the facts of it. It's undeniable. You can, it is. I mean, it, you said this the other day. Kat, it is as close to an undeniable situation, an undebatable yeah. situation as it could possibly be. And so True. I think, you know, most of the strategy from at this point from the other side is just to, like, ignore the overwhelming bulk of what's going on and just pretend it's not happening and maybe fixate on some like, oh, somebody said something that I'm going to construe as anti-Semitism to throw something out there. But if you're yeah. actually covering the ins and outs of this, I mean, how do you defend the mass number of children and women and the starvation and the collective punishment and the ethnic cleansing and the plausible genocide? Like, how do you hold yourself as anything approximating right. a moral, decent person and defend those things. It, it's like that piece of the interview that went viral with you and Destiny. I don't know if you saw this, but the part yeah. where Destiny's like, wait, has Israel bombed any hospitals? And you're like, yeah. Yeah, you were, you were like, Al, you brought up Al-Shifa, but as I was watching it, I had flashing in my mind these graphics that have been put out by Euromed Monitor, the human rights group, where they detail uh, the like- the hospital? It, it, okay, it's over 20 hospitals that have been attacked by Israel. Now, you might yeah. nitpick it and say, well, in this one, they directly bombed it. In this one, they were just sniping people out from across the street and shooting Which them in the face. Argument. They haven't been bombed. They've been... Right. But, but he makes it sound like these are surgical strikes, right? As opposed to, like, dozens of doctors getting hit or people popping out of uh, out of, uh, out of wheelchairs with machine guns. I mean, it's... it's, it's, it's Here... It's, yeah. I, I just want to give everybody the specifics so we're clear. Euromed Monitor, the human rights group, not Kyle Kalinske speaking, them speaking. This came out, this was day 120. So this was maybe, a, you know, a, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, 17 uh, days ago. We have 235 healthcare facilities that have been hit by Israel, including 26 hospitals, 63 clinics, and 146 ambulances. So to answer that question, they're the specific numbers. Right. That's why that moment went viral, because everybody who's followed this stuff day in and day out is like, holy, holy shit, what are we watching? 
And then, you know, he comes in like, well, have they even really done that? Yes, they've done it a thousand times right. over. Right. And, and but this is where, the, again, the, the language becomes important, right? Because what he says is, well, they didn't bomb them, right? The, you know, they 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 invaded them and they 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 took out the bad guys and yeah occasionally mm-hmm. you, to to break it to make an omelet you got to break a few eggs and so you know and, and and that's the answer to Crystal's question as well right unfortunately it's it's not a it's a it's an unsettling answer it's a ridiculous answer but the answer is they defended by saying yeah a bunch of kids are getting killed because one a lot of those kids aren't really kids they're terrorists which is the same argument we made in Afghanistan the same argument we made. In Yemen, right? Because they say, well, if you're a certain age, you're probably a fighter or you're going to be a fighter. You've been trained to fight. You're military age, you're Hamas age. Therefore, you're 14 going on your way to school. Doesn't matter. You're actually, we just killed another Hamas agent, right? And then the other way is to say, well, Hamas hides everywhere. They Right, right before we bomb them, they, stay, they walk into a residential home. And so when we bomb the house to get that super important Hamas uh, terrorists who we never find any information about, about, yeah, mm-hmm. unfortunately, we have to also wipe out the other six people in the family, you know? And this also was part of the UNRWA debate, right? As And you're right, Kyle, the, the, the number went from like 12 uh, UNRWA employees to like eight to six to four. But then they also said, well, yeah, but like 10% of UNRWA has ties to Hamas, or then it became like 30% of UNRWA has ties to Hamas. But these are very interestingly languaged terms. If I were to go to Los Angeles, and I were to go to Compton, and I were to arrest every black person that has a tie to to a gang, mm. right? You'd be locking up every black person in Compton because somebody got a cousin, somebody got a friend, somebody went to the prom with a gang member. Some, and, and you can frame it through language and through media to make it seem like it's really bad. This right. person sits down regularly with gang members. Yeah, it's called dinner. My brother is a crip. I'm not. I'm a college student, but we have dinner together at my mama's house, right? But you can frame it in that way. So when you then blow up the house or arrest me for my gang affiliation, it looks a certain way, right? And and that's effectively what we do. When you look at the journalists who've been killed in Gaza and they say, well, they weren't really journalists. They had Hamas ties. Well, Hamas is the government. So yeah, if I work for state radio, technically I have a Hamas tie, but I'm not out here doing anything but trying to report the violence on the ground. But because I am an official of state radio, now you can kill me and say I have a Hamas tie. If you look at my colleague at Al Jazeera, and I, it's heartbreaking how many of my colleagues, my colleagues, I mean, can you imagine working at a place where every day or at least every week another colleague of yours is murdered mm. on the job? And Wael Adahdur, uh, uh, who, who is the uh, bureau chief in Gaza, I mean, he lost his wife. He lost his son last month. Oh. Uh, Hamza, he lost uh, a daughter. He lost another son. He lost a niece. I mean, like, and every time they get killed, they try to tell us, oh, well, he had a Hamas tie. They had a Hamas tie. This is how they justify it, by making you think that every... And because deep down, there are a lot of people who think every Arab and every Palestinian in particular is a terrorist. Yeah. yeah. It becomes more palatable for the, for, the, for the audience. So at what point, though, do we... Because you're making phenomenal arguments here, but at what point does one, like, laugh the critics out of the room, right? Because that's what I struggle with. It's like, to give the exact number, it's 121 journalists who've been killed, the deadliest conflict for journalists Ever. And to your point, you also have the family members who are being killed as well. And it's like, at what point is it like, 
I don't know if this act, you are engaging in good faith. It sounds like you're just trying to nitpick it to the high heavens and do the, you know, it, what's the game called? Seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, like yeah. connects everybody yeah. back to Hamas in one way or another. And I think, yeah. look, to be clear, I think you've done a phenomenal job in finding a way to engage with this while also being clear and making the argument. But, um, I, you know, I have sympathy for the people who are who have a little bit more of a short fuse and they're just like... Fuck, the, uh, this isn't even a real argument that we're engaging in you're, right you're, now. You know what no, I mean? You're, you're right. I, th- I, I, I think I think we need both and not either or, though, right? So, right. so I think we should all have a short fuse on this politically. Like, we shouldn't be voting with with, with a generous spirit and heart. We shouldn't be allowing, you know, these organizations and, and movements to get funded with generosity, with intellectual or political generosity. The patience I have in benefit of the doubt is more for the audience that doesn't study this shit. This right, issue. right, yeah. So, so that because they don't, they don't have all these details. They just know a bunch of people are dying, and somebody's telling you it's unfair, and somebody else is telling you it's necessary because of these crazy, these crazy terrorists. Right. And so I'm trying to always feed the audience that stuff. At the same time, I have absolutely no critique of people who are like, screw that. This is an yeah. obvious genocide. It's text. It's literally if you were making a textbook on genocide, this would be the <laughs> example you would give. Yeah. Um. And 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 to, and to, and to not sort of, I I don't I don't demand increased patience from anybody else about that. I think the urgency though has to come in where we apply our political pressure. You know, right now the undetermined or or is it undetermined? Yeah, the undetermined category. I might you'd be using the uncommitted, wrong word. uncommitted, uncommitted in Michigan. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. The uncommitted uh, movement in Michigan is an important one for that reason, because. They're saying, look, you know, there's still time, Joe Biden, which I think is also its own political tactic, but there's still time, Joe Biden, but you got to do something. We're not committing to you until you have committed to this issue. Don't even come to Michigan. How the hell are you going to come to Michigan of all places? And you damn sure ain't coming to Dearborn um, campaigning when you have been the steward from the West of this genocide. You didn't cause it, but you're enabling it. Yeah. And so I think that that we can't give benefit of the doubt. Because uh, even it, it's, it's just untenable. We have to say with urgency, this is a genocide. You damn well know it's a genocide. Stop it. And if not, then we don't have our vote. Um, I have one more clip I wanted to get you to react to, Mark, uh, an interview that Nancy Pelosi just did where the interviewer is pressing her on, you know, Biden could be doing more to check the Netanyahu government that she admits is extreme, admits is, you know, extraordinarily far right. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. But there are levers that Biden could use, which he hasn't used. There are levers which previous presidents have used when Israel has, in their view, crossed the line. For example, go back to 1956. Eisenhower threatened sanctions if Israel didn't pull its forces out of Sinai. Um, Reagan, you know, um, held up delivery of fighter jets over Israel's action in Lebanon. George Bush Sr. blocked loan guarantees because of settlement building. He did. I was there the day that uh, that I, I, well, you're going back to 56. I mean, so these levers are there, aren't they? There's some, but the president has. Uh, said uh, something about uh, the, uh, the the settlements. He has said something about the settlements. But saying and and blocking uh, weapon supplies, for well, instance, are very different things, aren't well, they? Well, it's not. It's a path. It's a path. I mean, it's just it's pathetic. 
What you say? It's a path? It's a path. What does that mean? So first of all, she didn't even know about a bunch of those historical incidents. Then she said, well, he said something about the settlers. So I guess that's good enough. But I mean, first of all, just react to the specifics there. But also, you know, it's no surprise to any of us that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have had a basically uniform unconditional support of Israel for years that this is very bipartisan project like that's not a surprise to any of us. But are you surprised by how far Biden has been willing to go for Israel, including potentially sacrificing his own reelection prospects here? I remember when um, Barack Obama was running for president and I had some doubt you know, even when it, that he could win, right, at some point. And somebody asked me, well, I said, well, white men are undefeated. You know, they're, <laughs> they're 43 and 0 in this thing. Like, you know, evidence is on their side. <laughs> I think that's the Biden approach right now is supporting Israel. No president has lost the presidency by supporting Israel, mm. right? Now, they all support Israel, so I'm not saying you support Israel, you win either. But what I'm saying is, is that no one has opposed Israel in a substantive way and won. The closest person was Bernie, and that Bernie's no progressive warrior on this issue by any stretch. But even Bernie's saying that, you know, uh, withholding funding funding to Israel uh, until it meets uh, human, basic human rights standards when he ran for president, was that dog didn't hunt, you know, uh, for, for a lot of voters. And so there's a way that Biden, despite the fact that it looks ridiculous and and history is changing in the same way that eventually white men weren't undefeated anymore, where Biden may find for the first time since Eisenhower, um, he he may find himself in a situation where the tenor on Israel has changed enough that you can make a different move. And maybe even that you have to make a different move. Now, I'm not saying he has to be anti-Zionist to win the presidency. I don't think that wins an American imperial project. But at the very least, he has to have something to say about this genocide. He has to have some significant pushback. I mean, George H.W. Bush was far more heroic, honestly, probably than any president in the last 30 years on this matter. It's been 30 years, my math is off. My it's been four. Oh my God, I'm old. Okay, so then, <laughs> it, 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 however long it's been, you know, he, he, he's probably been among the better ones, sadly. Um, and he so, froze settlements, just to your right. point. He froze, he, he conditioned loan guarantees on freezing settlements in the West Bank. Right, which is honestly as good as anything anybody's done. I mean, Obama's profile and courage was abstaining. Abstaining, right. When he was already on his way out, yep. too. Right. Yep. And he still was like, nope, I'm still not, I, I'm not screwed up my my legacy. No, 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 I'm still abstaining. He did what the UK did yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we'll let the US veto, will abstain, but you know, you know. So so there's a there's a very interesting set of moves happening in the Pelosi clip that speak to this. Uh, one, like they're all doing, it's another talking point, like Bernie, where they keep talking about the extreme right-wing Netanyahu government, right? That's the language that they use. And the reason why they use that language, one is because it allows them to be opposing not Israel as such, but simply right-wing politics, which you can do as a Democrat. Right, right. So so it just sounds like, oh, we're just opposing right-wing governments. They would never say we oppose Israel as an ethno-state. Right, yep. That's right. right. The, 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 we, we don't oppose this ethnos. We just oppose this right wing. So when people are marching in Israel, when people are standing and blocking pathways in Tel Aviv or they're in front of uh, Netanyahu's house or, you know, wherever, and they're challenging the government and they're saying, oh, you know, he's, 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 uh, 
He's crossed the line this time, trying to basically undermine the Supreme Court. He's trying to undermine the kind of reasonableness standards that undergird our legal apparatus. They can, they can say all of that because it's a legible language, right, to a, to, to a liberal democratic empire. So I can I can sit over here in the United States and say, yeah, I hate when presidents go too far to the right. Oh, I hate when presidents try to take over the Supreme Court. We got Trump. But the problem is that language suggests that Pelosi or Biden or Bernie, if Israel were to just move over to the center of Netanyahu, would just be allied with the Labor Party? You know what I mean? Or God forbid, joint list, which will never happen. But like, if he were to just align himself with some center or left-wing parties in Israel for his coalition, we could live with him as they have lived in since the 90s, right? Um, it suggests that Israel is one democratic or one liberal prime minister away from being our normal ally again. Right. And it yep. ignores yep. the fact that even when you have that liberal ally, Gaza is still under siege. Yep. It's still a cage. The West Bank is, is, is subjected to the longest military occupation in modern history. The state of Israel itself is 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 has numerous laws that that diminishes the, the, the rights and the status uh, and, the, and, the, and the equality of, of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel. And then people around the diaspora remain refugees. All of those things are not the problem of extreme right-wing governments. They are problems of a state that, that that offers citizenship and live in freedom and justice depending upon whether or not you are Jewish or not. And that is the fundamental problem that, that, that our country doesn't want to challenge or critique. And that fundamental problem is why Pelosi will always be just a little afraid of saying, well, we don't, you know, it's a path is what she said. Yeah, that's one way to do it. Yeah. yeah. He, he basically offered the most humane, just, and reasonable tactic for getting equality, right? Which is to say, we're going to withhold, we're going to stop feeding this beast. We're going to stop giving you money and weapons and political cover if you keep oppressing people. And she goes, yeah, well, I mean, it's one, if, that's one way to do it. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, it is. <laughs> Well, to your point, she apparently was full of praise later in that interview for uh, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, who was the one who famously oh. said there are no uninvolved civilians in Gaza. These are the quote unquote liberals that yep. we're supposed to be hoping come to power. We know that since, you know, the 70s, the settlements have expanded, <sighs> whether whatever party the prime minister has come through. I mean, this is a whole of nation project because it is the natural end result of an ethno state. That is... Right. That is the reality. Um, so, I mean, to, to watch her have to squirm like that is extraordinary and very revealing because also, you know, the only thing that she can point to is the sanctions Biden put on four settlers, right. which is also very, I mean, to your point about the way that they, oh, well, it's Netanyahu that's the problem. It's also, it's these, you know, few violent extremist settlers that are right. the problem. Not the whole of the occupation and the right. whole of the fact that all of the settlements are illegal right. under international law. Exactly. There are it's not there are no good and bad settlers. Settlers, it's this it's the settlement itself. It's the idea of settling, settler colonialism, even. That's the problem. Um, it's not that we got these really bad, you know, these really bad. It's like that's like saying we're gonna punish the really bad slave masters, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the ones that are really abusive. We're gonna make Give some a tax credit to the good them. ones. Right. <laughs> 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 Neoliberals for you people. <laughs> That's the way they think.
that, that's why Bernie wouldn't call it a genocide also. I don't know if you saw that oh. clip. Yeah. Bernie refused to call it a genocide because painful. if you call it a genocide, what's entailed in that is, I think South Africa is correct at the International Court of Justice. Therefore, whatever conclusion they come to about how, you know, it's Hague time, Netanyahu and Ben Gavir and Smotrich, it, allow, it makes it so that now... He doesn't have to sign on to the logical consequence of the end result of that case. That's right. Where you could say, I'm right. against it. It's a slaughter. It's bad. It's horrific. But, hey, the language, I don't know if I'd call it a genocide. Yeah, that's right. Right. I'm very uncomfortable. You know, yeah. he, does whole, he does the whole bit, right? Where he, he's uncomfortable. He, he makes it sound like he doesn't like to use labels. He's like, I'm not comfortable with labels. Right. But it's, it's, I didn't ask him, like, what are we? Like, we're dating, right? It's like, it's like, it's, <laughs> He, we, they, they asked if it was a genocide. He said, "I'm not comfortable with labels and things like that, you know, and I'm, I'm and I'm not comfortable with sanctions in certain ways." And they said, "What about South Africa?" He said, "Oh, that was clear because that was apartheid." Yeah, he did say right. that, right? They're like, oh, this, this here. is not yeah, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, <laughs> genocide. You know, it, it's uh, ugly and horrific, but it's not those things. Yeah, right. Yeah, he um, painted himself into a corner, so he just he just said, "You know what? I don't care. I'm done." Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. There is something about people of a certain age who have had the Cold War. I don't know if it's the Cold War propaganda or what it is, but there is such an age divide here. I guess the last question I'll ask you, Mark, is, I mean, are you hopeful that because young Americans have such a different view of this conflict that perhaps we can look forward to uh, a future where, you know, the politics on this are different, where the Democratic Party, not out of morality, but out of self-interest, realize they have to moderate their views and we can end up with an outcome that isn't, I mean, what we're heading to now is a one-state solution. It's a one-state solution where Palestinians are either dead or pushed out of their territory altogether. Yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful just because I have an undying, abiding faith in the people. So I always believe that as long as we're living, uh, we can create new possibilities, we can struggle, we can fight. Um, my concern is connected to the Pelosi concern, the, the, the Bernie concern, the Biden concern that I just mm -hmm. talked about. Mm -hmm. And that is that people are witnessing the brutality of the Israeli government. Um, in the same way that they witnessed the brutality of the American police state under Ferguson in 2014 mm -hmm. or George Floyd in 2020. But the problem is that we still see these as uh, as, as as bugs rather than it's like feature. a few bad apples argument. Yes, yes, exactly. That, that 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 that's exactly right. And it's like these aren't bugs; these are features, right? Nation states are violent. Nation states create oppressed minorities. Nation states do these types of things. Ethno states create other types of things, uh, as we see in Israel. But because it's being framed as reform. Uh, worthy problems. That is to say, let's get rid of the right-wing government in Israel. Let's cease fire. Okay, we cease fire. Cool. But now what? Do we go back to to, to October 6th? Because October 6th was untenable. Gaza was literally unlivable by every human rights standard That's right. on October 6th. Before we ever got to October 7th, where now it's unthinkable. So you know, we can't integrate our way. We can't have police officers just move into our neighborhoods or learn to do dance, line dances with us or, you know, mm -hmm. become black and all the problems or, or attach a body camera to their car and everything gets fixed. These are systemic structural problems. We, we, our, our systems of racial capitalism um, and, and, and our uh, legacy of settler colonialism 
create these problems that we deal with in the United States and Canada and Israel and Australia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And until we wrestle with those things, we'll just be tinkering. We'll just be tinkering around the edges. And so, yes, I'm still hopeful that things will get better because this generation won't stand for 30,000 deaths in Gaza right now. And another almost 70,000 injured. Um, They won't stand for what we're seeing with police officers beating us. But fundamentally, until we disrupt the logic that says that, um, that nation states should be or have the right to give out citizenship or freedom um, based on your ethnic or national or religious or racial identity, until we get rid of that, and until we, or until we recognize, I think we do sort of accept that as a general principle, like everyone should be equal, except for Palestine, as I wrote my book with Mitchell Plittinger, except for Palestine. We have to figure out why we have that Palestinian exception and do it in a way that produces freedom, safety, dignity, uh, self-determination and justice for Jewish people, right? We can't ever leave our Jewish brothers and sisters behind, but their freedom and dignity, self-determination, justice, et cetera, can't come at the expense of Palestinians. And so that's a more nuanced, complicated conversation that can't be resolved with Democrat versus Republican electoral politics because mm-hmm. both wings of that bird still uphold racial capitalism. They still uphold the racial state. They still uphold settler colonialism. They still uphold ethno-nationalism. And so we can't we we won't get better by continuing to say let's just move to the left or let's just move to the right we're going to have to dismantle this whole system globally and come up with something that's more equitable and until we do that um we're not going to get there from your lips to god's ears so guys everybody do me a big favor go to youtube go to mark lamont hill with type that in mark, mark with, with a c, a c. <laughs> type that in coming subscribe. from crystal with a k <laughs> by, by the way congrats you just crossed 100,000 subscribers recently you're at 102,000 subscribers oh, that's a big milestone oh, that's you're gonna huge, get, did you get your plaque? You're going to get a plaque for that, too. Am I going, people said that. I don't know if that was like an urban legend or something. No, no it's, it's true. But you know what? You might have to go in on the back end of your YouTube channel and like click something to accept it. It's something like that. At least it was okay, when I'll I got go looking. mine. I'm yeah, good. but congratulations, man. I think you're doing phenomenal work. Everybody go subscribe to him. And uh, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, great to see you, Thank Mark. Thank you. Great to see both of you. Uh, let's, let's talk soon. All right. So that was Mark Lamont Hill. So um, I typed in his name to YouTube, to the search bar. One of the first thing that comes up four weeks ago, he had a, he debated a quote, ultra Zionist. Oh, I watched some of that. Oh, did you? Yeah. I didn't see that one yet. Yeah. But it's got a lot of views. It's got over 140,000 views. Mm -hmm. I mean, Um, he's just good. I learned that from watching him with Destiny. I learned that he's very good at, he he has like a calm demeanor and he's got a lot of attention to detail. So he's good at sort of you know, somebody throws a question at him or makes a debate point. He's good at sort of dissecting it and sounding reasonable. Yeah. Whereas not everybody can do that. You know, he knows the history extremely well, very well, and has very thought well. through. You know, what are the talking points on the other side, and so knows how to handle them, and has a lot of confidence, which I think is part of what leads to that calm demeanor. If you feel like really solid in where you stand and what you're going to be able to bring to the other side, that debate that you're talking about. He had put out a video that was like five myths about the Israel-Palestine conflict or something like that, that this Zionist group had responded to. And so then he reached out to them and said, hey, let's let's talk about it. Let's debate it. And that was the genesis of, of that um, debate, which, like I said, I just started watching. But so far is really, really good and really interesting. He does an excellent job. So uh, I'm excited to see that he's joined the, 
YouTube world. Yeah, definitely. World. Definitely. I was just talking to him to try to get him on breaking points as well so he can get more attention to his channel because he definitely is one who deserves it. And the fact that he wants to engage in those debates is also a good thing. Fantastic. You know? Yes. Because that's rare. All right, guys. So that's the show. We love you all very much. Thank you, as always, for listening. Do yourself a favor. If you haven't yet, sign up for Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack. It helps us out. We never talk to any advertisers or do any ad reads or any goofy stuff like that. Um, so you guys fund this show from the bottom up. We deeply appreciate it. We love you, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.